Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. So the Onyx Hunt app will give you an edge with the most intelligent and accurate GPS mapping tool for hunters. And one of the newest features within the Hunt app that I that I like and have been using is the weather underground feature where you're able to see the local weather in your area right in the app. It just keeps everything in one spot. I mean, I always use weather underground to, to rely on the weather and with this, I can look at it, see the wind direction, kind of see how things are playing out and make a plan, especially for hunting the whitetails here in Pennsylvania. If you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app, you can use the coupon code EMW and that'll save yourself 20% off of that app. And the University of Elk Hunting, so Corey Jacobson, Elk 101, have put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting learning course available. And, I mean, this course isn't something that you're going to go through in, you know, a few hours. This is something that you need to plan out and really take some time and dive into it because there's a lot of information. I've gone through it multiple times every year. I keep renewing my membership and utilizing it because of all the information that's in there and in addition to that i mean you get a whole bunch of other benefits from discounts from sponsors discounts from the elk 101 store i mean the membership pays for itself and just a, a few of those additional purchases but anyways if you'd like to check out the university of elk hunting if you use the coupon code east meets west you'll save yourself 20 percent or an otherwise 20 dollars off of a yearly membership so check that out at elk101.com. And Maven Optics. So Maven has you know come out with the highest quality optics available at half the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. Not only did they go through this business model to be able to help get you a better price, but they also wanted to be closer to their customers, being at the shows, hands-on, talking to everyone. And that's what kind of separates Maven from, from anybody else, in my opinion, is their customer service is top-notch. You will make sure that they will make sure that you are happy with your product. Any issues, their lifetime warranty will take care of you. And when you call, you get a real person. You don't you don't get some answering service or some foreign person that you can't understand. So if you want to go over to mavenbuilt.com, you can check out their optics. You can build custom optics. You can get stock optics, whatever that is. If you use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT, you get yourself a free gift with any full price optics order. So check that out. <clears throat> All right. So on today's episode here, I'm bringing Kyle Hansen on to talk about some travel logistics. So Kyle is one of the, he's, well, a guy that I met here and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit in the episode, but he's been helping me plan this Alaskan hunt and has done some of these adventures himself and has a lot of really good tidbits that I hadn't heard anywhere else as far as with flying and some organizational type tips. I mean, I geek out on that stuff. So I, I think that's really, really helpful and been, I'm really glad he came on to talk about this stuff. So, um, as far as like 
as we start going forward here in, in 2020 and happy new year again, by the way, but I want to, especially at the beginning of the year here, really start, <clears throat> excuse me, shifting gears to start, uh, you know, giving some more information on the Western hunting again here at the beginning of the year, as we're, you know, looking at how, you know, how to draw tags, what does over the counter mean going through, you know, the options that are available and making sure not skipping some of those steps for, for those of you that are interested in that. And I'd love to give your feedback on some of the, you know, the content that you like, some of the things you don't like, whatever it is, you just shoot me an email, shoot me a message on Instagram, uh, whatever that might be. That would be extremely helpful, the feedback and what you want more of. Um, trying to get some good, you know, takeaway stuff that, that you can apply and be able to, you know, go on, whether it's your dream hunts out West, or if it's a, just, you know, your dream hunt in the Appalachian mountains, mountain bucks, your weekend hunting, whatever that is, you know, I want to be a part of that, to to be able to help and, and, uh, definitely not going to lay off the, the mountain buck stuff though, either. I mean, that's, that's my bread and butter. That's what I grew up doing. That's what I love doing. And it seems like that most of you like it too and want to learn more. So I think that's going to be a pretty big focus here um, going forward as well. So got some real excited information coming up there. Definitely interested to hear um, what you want to hear more of from the the mountain buck side of things, big woods, white tails. Um, Give me some feedback on that. That'd be be really helpful. Working on a big project here for 2020 um, in in regards to that. So not going to talk about it in detail yet, but just know there's something coming down the pipeline that I'm really, really, really excited about. But um, as far as this week, got um, the ATA show coming up, so I'll be heading there um, Thursday night, spending a couple days there, and then traveling over to the i'll be heading to ohio to hunt for a couple days with chris derrick from sitka and owen murphy at latitudes outfitting gonna do just a couple days there uh do some podcasts talking about the new gear the highly anticipated pack that everybody is is wanting to hear more about and uh some other exciting things that'll be coming out in the future there so really love getting to be a part of that and be a part of some of building some of these products and everything else with Sika there. So yeah, a lot of exciting things coming up. The uh, mountain box, give me a slip. Uh, I was out here on Saturday in Pennsylvania, had really good feeling about this spot. And, and I was out there the previous Saturday, kind of geared down where they were coming from. Um, cold weather was moving in, sign felt good, got a little bit closer in the cover. And then a couple of muzzleloader hunters, came walking in and they were looking for their range finder they lost so it was kind of a mess but and and uh reality it's all good probably the last time i'll get to hunt whitetails and pa here um for the 1920 season but hey it, it is what it is it was an amazing year a lot of learning um hunted about 90 percent new areas like brand new to me so it's 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 a learning curve and and I definitely think got a lot of good takeaways from it but um yeah so let's dive into this this episode here with kyle hansen enjoy 
All right, we're live back for another episode, and I have on the line tonight Kyle Hansen. What's going on, man? Not much, man. I got my moose mug topped off, and I'm ready to record a podcast with you. <laughs> there you go. You having a cup of Joe? Yep. I can't can't beat that. As we were talking on the phone last night, and uh, you're doing the same thing for a little bit of that evening grind. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that's funny so kyle uh well one thanks for coming on i'm pretty pumped to, to get to talk to you here because you and i have become close over the last year um met through kind of instagram there and um, when i was planning my looking at planning this alaskan trip for this year and you know in the, the meantime you give me a lot of great information and now you're on to uh, doing a little more where you're helping me with quite a bit of the hunt. <laughs> yep. Yep. Happy to help you. And that's funny how people connect that way. Yeah. Instagram. Yep. Social media. Yep. Social media. I, I look at it as a pretty good thing. I've met some pretty cool people uh, throughout it. You know, it can be used for negative ways, but I see it as a positive. Yeah, definitely. Cool man. So let's uh, let's start off with uh, giving a little introduction to yourself. You know who you are, where you're from, and kind of what got you into adventure hunting. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to jump on first off, but just a little bit about me. Uh, born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. I still live in Iowa City, Iowa. I uh, spend quite a bit of time hunting here, of course, but. Growing up here, I always dreamed of bigger and better things, or not necessarily better things, but farther things, and uh, I've always been most fascinated with the farthest, most remote destinations and most unique animals, and so growing up, I fantasized naturally about like Alaska and Canada and moose and caribou and, of course, elk and deer out west and everything while chasing everything in-state I could possibly get a tag for growing up or could afford to do. I just always dreamed of those bigger things. And and so as far as uh, my jump into adventure hunting, it really uh, stemmed from that. I come from a very modest background uh, growing up working on cars and and uh, playing around my grandfather's farm that I still hunt today, believe it or not. And uh, the natural progression of things, just eventually one thing leads to another. You get an opportunity to go hunt out of state. I think my first out of state hunt was actually a rifle antelope hunt, and it just all started from there. And and then uh, on to the Alaska stuff. I actually, this is kind of funny, I first started planning my first Alaskan hunt, similar to like what you're doing, unguided drop hunt up there. I uh, did it for moose first off. And I started planning that around the same time that I found out that you could legally hunt moose in Alaska without a guide. And I actually found that out from watching YouTube videos just years and years ago. I saw guys doing it and just realized one day, hey, I can do that too. There's no reason why I shouldn't start planning. And just through the natural progression of things, I landed where I did and ended up booking an unguided drop hunt with Outdoors International, which is how I ended up getting involved with them. But I took my dad up there back in 2016. We started planning in 2014, did our first unguided Alaskan hunt. We were both fortunate to take nice bulls on that trip. And and then uh, as soon as I 
got out of the field, I knew it was for me and I was hooked and I started planning my next trip for 2018, the day after I got out of the field before I even took a shower actually. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, like 14 days in the field wasn't enough. Had to go start planning round two and it all just took off from there. I just absolutely fell in love with every aspect of it between the planning and logistics pre-hunt as well as, you know, what you learn from a hunt in the field. And of course, you know, everything that happens during the hunt is awesome, but you know, there's so much that goes into adventure hunting and all that, you know, as we'll talk about today, there's so much that goes into it definitely fall in love with the process. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it sounds like you've, and you've, you know, taken that information that you've learned from planning these and have helped a lot of people out, which kind of, you know, led to your current role, um, with outdoors international. Absolutely. Yeah. So explain a little bit about, uh, I guess what, what you're doing with outdoors international and, and what that's all about. Yeah, definitely. So my current uh, career job title with Outdoors International is International Hunting Consultant. And uh, Outdoors International being an international hunting consultant agency, essentially what we do for people is we are kind of like a travel agent, but for people's hunting trips. And so people can basically come to us and just say, hey, uh, this is my bucket list. I've always wanted to go on, let's just use moose as an example. I've always wanted to go on a moose hunt, but I don't know where to start. Um, where would you guys send me? What do you recommend? And, um, with that, uh, oftentimes brings up a lot more questions like, okay, why would I book my hunt with you guys versus doing all my own research? Well, essentially we've done all that for our clients and that service is no of no additional fee to our clients. And so say, for example, if somebody wants to book a moose hunt for X number of dollars, whether it's booked through us or through one of our outfitters that we have pre-vetted and hunted with before, the price is the same. And all of our fees are paid for because we do some of our outfitters marketing as well. And so it's a pretty cool service that um, obviously I've fallen in love with as, as a, uh, a client of Outdoors International before becoming a consultant for Outdoors International, because I booked all of my hunts with one of the owners of Outdoors International, Russ Meyer, for about four years prior to getting recruited as an agent for the team. And so, uh, you know, naturally, that was just a good fit for me. So, I gotcha. And what was I guess with with you know hunting consultants and stuff? What I had what I had imagined and what I pictured them being in the past was. You know, only if you were doing guided hunts, which you do do that, but you also do these, you know, these DIY type hunts, drop camps, um, you know, the the fly-in hunts, all those different things. And I thought that was really awesome. I mean, to me, it it made sense after talking to you and, you know, kind of getting a relationship uh, with you to be like, all right, instead of me stressing over playing these things for the first time, why not go through this that, like you said, is not going to cost any extra money. You have all the data. You have, you know, basically the a list of the necessary gear you need. Um, everything else, you know, as far as the logistics of flying there, all that other, you know, details um, around the hunt that kind of takes that stress off of you to to be able to have that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and that's what uh, really sold me when I went on my unguided moose hunts that I had done through Outdoors International, and I had done two actually, and uh, it just it took a lot of that initial stress out of the equation. Just talking to somebody who has been there and done that, so to say, and then you know speaking to different styles of hunts with guided versus unguided, I kind of thought the same thing initially too, but just realized that there's so many different hunting opportunities out there. I mean, really we can set anybody up with, uh, something that matches their expectations. Yeah. And like, so like at this point in, you know, in my life, I'm, I'm not as interested in, in the guided ones and that's not from any reason other than that's just not where I'm at financially to, you know, be able to do that. So that the fact that they have the, the DIY, style hunts that are more affordable but also once i get to a point hopefully where i'm able to to do some more of those those fully outfitted ones you know that's that's a really cool option to have as well and you know people that are you know uh better off than myself or maybe you're better at planning whatever that might be uh financially then those are great options yeah for sure and you know with the unguided uh alaskan drop hunts they've gained so much in popularity we we've sent hundreds of clients on those hunts now and we get a lot of leads on those type of hunts but obviously we uh we do a lot of with the guided hunts as well yeah yeah i am i'm really looking forward to i mean the the process so far i mean i have you know you and i have worked together here uh and with my buddy michael and it was a pretty seamless uh you know, process to, you know, book where when we were looking at moose hunts, you know, last year before, you know, we talked to you, we called, well, Michael called probably 20 different, <clears throat> excuse me, air taxis and, you know, had issues getting responses, all these different things, trying to get all that information together. And this just seemed a lot, lot simpler. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. We try to make it as easy as possible for our clients. And it's just, makes our service that much better and you know it's it's really nice too because i mean like you said you guys were looking at unguided alaskan hunts whether that be moose or caribou or other species and with our service um we have a directory of outfitters and trip providers that provide all of these different services and so a guy can literally come to me and say hey can you help me plan my north american 29 and we can do that as well as uh, Asian, European, Australian, South American, African. I mean, really just about anything and everything out there we have trip providers for. And so it just takes a lot of the hassle out of trying to narrow everything down from big picture to small picture because we essentially have already done that with our directory of outfitters that we work with. So what is, what's your favorite part about being able to do that job? probably living vicariously through a lot of my clients and all the cool stuff I get to plan for them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, I, there's a, it's kind of the same concept of like, uh, you know, if, uh, say you used to work in a pro shop in your younger days, I'm sure you probably, uh, bought a lot more archery equipment while you were working in that pro shop. Well, it's just naturally being closer to, uh, what you're passionate about through work, you end up doing it more. So I think that, uh, in the near future with all the cool hunts I get to send people on, I'm probably going to end up going on more of them just because I'm tempted so much more. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, I mean, yeah, just, uh, you know, helping people see through 
their dreams and see those things come to fruition. Um, the networking aspect has been amazing for me. Um, there's been a, a few hunts that I've planned that have really hit home for me. Like there's a, a gentleman that came to me and it just absolutely blew my mind when he came to me. I had no idea how we were going to go about it, but I knew I had connections to make it happen. He came to me and said, Hey, I'm, I'm a quadriplegic and I want to harvest a trophy free range elk. It's like, all right, I'm not going to say no. I'm just going to say, let me, let me get to work and get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the gentleman's name was Terry. He's from Ohio, and we were able to put him on about a 320-inch bull free range. And he shot it with his rifle using uh, air controls with uh, his breathing. It's actually a really, really neat setup. It, it took a lot to make it come together, but we just found the right setup, the right location, right terrain, time of year, everything that came together. He had a tracked wheelchair and this uh, really slick bracketry that held his rifle in place. And like I said, it, the trigger was, was like air powered. Yeah. Breath. And, uh, it just goes to show like one of those things where there's a will, there's a way you you really can do anything. And so we were able to help this guy successfully harvest a free range wild bull elk that went almost 320 inches it was just crazy now that was there, there was a little bit of luck in there too with that size of bull coming out yeah you know, he just wanted to harp a, a bull elk but i mean it was just so cool and obviously that was a guided type of a hunt and there was there was some people there helping and he had a traveling nurse that comes with him just for health purposes and uh, a lot of things that went into that but we were able to make it happen um so that was really cool. I mean, just being able to be the person to help see that dream of his come to fruition. He spent the last 20 years in a wheelchair and, you know, just dreaming of this. And I, quite frankly, he'd been shot down by some other people. And uh, I just, we connected and we were able to make it happen. So that's an example of one of those. And um, that's not the only one of those types of hunts that I've helped set up too. Um, but then uh, also uh, just, you know, hunters like to talk hunting, including myself. I'm <laughs> a hunter, and <laughs> I get to talk to other hunters about their hunting trips and helping plan their trips every day. So, yeah, that's that's really it's, uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, makes it makes it easy. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely rewarding, and um, you know, oh, that's, absolutely, that's what's rewarding. what's super. It's just cool to be able to you know, all of us that are like minded like this love talking hunting. So being able to you know, do that, help others achieve their goals and put a little bit of coin in your pocket doesn't hurt. And, but in reality, if this is something like when I worked at a pro shop, um, I never made any money because it all went right into the equipment <laughs> and sounds like could be that way for you, um, <laughs> with planning some hunts. So, <laughs> yeah, I've, my uh, my schedule is starting to fill up as a result of, of working with Outdoors International because <laughs> I got all the trips in front of me. I'm like, well, let's see, I could do that in 21, this in 20. And it's, uh, I definitely uh, tend to book a few more hunts for myself nowadays because I can see all the possibilities a lot clearer with having everything on the table. But yeah, it's, it's nice that way. But you know, it's, uh, just from a financial standpoint, yeah, it's, it's financially beneficial to do it. Obviously I, otherwise I, I wouldn't be able to do it, you know, just yeah. time is money. And if you're going to spend your time doing something, it needs to be financially beneficial. But I mean, 
it's one of those things. I'm not necessarily setting the world on fire, but I'm living comfortably at the moment and I'm happy with that. Yeah, no, that's awesome, dude. So what I wanted to really dive into today is it's a question that, that I've, you know, gotten a pass from people, you know, wanting to learn more about. And also with myself doing uh, a trip this year where I'm going to be flying to hunt, I want to know some of the ins and outs with flying to a destination to hunt. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is, you know, a little bit different, whether you're going to uh, Alaska or somewhere else in the lower 48, but I, I'm sure some of them, you know, some of the things cross over here. So, what do you say we dive into that a little bit, Kyle? Yeah, definitely. Cool. So I guess there's there's so many questions that comes to mind, you know, when when you're looking at, you know, flying to a destination versus driving. I've for any of my western hunts, I've I've driven there from the aspect of being able to get everything there, you know, have everything with me, bring the meat back. Just seems simpler and and maybe it is. But you know, there's, there's some hunts or whether it comes down to time, you don't have time to spend a couple of days driving, or if it's a place like Alaska and you, you definitely need to fly, you know, let's, let's talk about a little bit. Um, let's start off with flying with weapons and, you know, some of the things to, to think of when you're doing that, is it as difficult as it sounds or, or am I overthinking it? You know, it, it really isn't that bad. It's just more stressful than anything, having not done it before. Um, there's a lot of things that go into it between the different airlines, regulations. Um, they're all about the same with TSA regulations ruling all of them. However, different airlines can be a little bit more friendly than others towards sportsmen, um, as well as certain weapons and whatnot. Um, I've got a few examples there with the best airline out there that is the most sportsman friendly being Alaska Airlines, the one that you'll fly with to Alaska and back, um, kind of the middle of the road ones being all the other domestic airlines. And then the worst I've ever experienced be Air Canada, sorry, Air Canada, but <laughs> that was not a fun experience. Um, but something that I've ran into here recently that just got brought to my attention is, um, with hard weapon cases, there is typically these eyelets that you put padlocks on. And um, the regulation per TSA is that you have to have enough locks on it to where you can't open the case and pull anything or any of its contents out manually. Whereas I actually recently went on a late season rifle elk hunt in Idaho and I went to fly out of uh, Cedar Rapids here in Iowa, and I almost missed my flight because the nice lady behind the counter checking my weapon in said I needed to have one lock per every eyelet. However, after going and getting a TSA officer to verify the regulation, he said, no, that's not the case. This guy's right. Take his weapon. He's about to miss his flight. So, <laughs> wow. so there's, there's, there's some people issues that go into that as well. But I guess my travel hack and point there is, I guess, uh, to avoid the people issue portion of that, I would just go ahead and put four locks on it. <laughs> okay. Um, but, um, but, um, basically, uh, always check the T the, uh, current airline regulations that you are about to fly with. That's first and foremost, they all have a little bit different little idiosyncrasies that can go in there for the most part. They're similar, but always check, um, you know, one airline might tell you one thing versus another, but at the end of the day, just check, um, 
far as uh, flying with weapons, bows, rifle, sidearms, stuff like that. Um, how I prefer to do it, uh, like say, for example, with the Alaska hunt, where you're going to be bringing a lot of gear with you. Space is always a commodity when packing luggage. So with like a rifle, what I do is I'll use a double rifle case and uh, I use those three layer foam ones where you can cut out the foam or take the foam out of the center layer altogether. And then I actually take my rifle and I'll put it in a soft sided padded case and then put that in the rifle case itself along with like my ammo and a sidearm if I'm bringing one as well, which I've never had an issue with putting my ammo in the same case as the weapon. You just can't have ammo in the weapon. It can't be loaded, obviously. And then what I'll also do is like put optics or tripod, spotter, that kind of stuff inside of that case as well. And then I'll fill all that dead space with um, like clothing or something like that. That's kind of a travel hack to save space in your uh, primary luggage. And then same thing with a bow too, um, which a bow is actually considered uh, sporting equipment. It's not actually considered a firearm unless you're flying with Air Canada, apparently. But that's a different story because <laughs> they didn't they didn't really know the difference between a bow and a firearm. But, well, but, a, a, actually, uh, just before you keep going there, I have a quick story on that note. And I was I don't think yeah. I was with Air Canada, but I can't remember. I went I went to Canada. And went to Alberta, and I got out at the airport there, and the, you had to go when you're going through customs there, and I'm checking, you know, do you have any firearms? And I hit, no, it's sporting goods because it didn't meet the requirement for a firearm, and that lady lost it on me when she saw my bow case and was, you know, asking what it was and going through it. And, and again, I ended up being okay with doing it, but she gave me a hell of a time about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were, they were yeah. not real happy. And when I went back to the U S they're like, yeah, get, get back there. They were, they were pretty easy going on the way back, but I, I had a little bit of trouble going in. Yeah. Same deal. I, my, the backstory with that, I should probably give a little more, uh, backstory on that. I was flying air Canada from Chicago to Vancouver, Vancouver to, Prince George, British Columbia, and leaving Chicago, they, uh, I almost missed my flight because they, they, uh, held me there. They didn't know what to do with my bow. And, uh, I said, well, we need to check your firearm. It's like, it's, it's not a firearm with all due respect. It's a, it's a compound bow. And they're just like, I don't know what kind of firearm that is. It's like, I don't know how to explain this to you any other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, a firearm. Well, does it have a projectile? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we need to check it as a firearm. Like, oh God, <laughs> it's going to be a long day. But uh, uh, it ended up working out fine. They just, uh, for some reason, the Air Canada service is just not really up to par with sportsmen. And, you know, that's just how it is, I guess. But, Hmm. And so when you're putting things in, say the, the rifle case and everything, why, why were you saying that you put, you know, your, say your rifle inside a soft case inside the, like the, the SKB or whatever, you know, hard shell case. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the reason I do that is I used to, when traveling, I'd, I'd have that, um, SKB case or Pelican. I think I use a Pelican Pelican case, maybe. Either way, they both make good products. But I used to have the custom cutout foam in that, and that's really nice. It's pretty. 
you know, it protects the rifle really well, but you can protect your weapon of choice equally well by just padding and filling all that dead space with clothing. And then also you need a soft-sided rifle case for the bush plane travel because you can't take your hard case on a bush plane. And so like in the case of the Alaska trip, where you are going to be bringing a lot of stuff with you um, and packing. You're going to want to think, okay, what, what do I really need? What can I fit in a certain amount of baggage going up? How can I save money on luggage? One of the things you can do because you're going to have to bring a soft-sided rifle case anyways, like just a cheap like Walmart padded rifle case if you're hunting with a rifle. Um, you can use that to protect your rifle inside of the hard case and create a lot more room inside of that rifle case to pack like your optics. Uh, you can use clothing as padding, which then takes away from your primary checked luggage total. It's just being more efficient is all. And, you know, if, if a guy really wanted to have his rifle protected the absolute best, you know, you can do the cutout foam thing and it looks all pretty and everything, but it, wastes a lot of space because by the time that your rifle case is loaded with just a rifle ammo and maybe a sidearm too you're still sitting at only like 30 35 pounds and it can weigh up to 50 versus if your primary luggage if you have like 75 pounds of primary luggage to bring whether that be one really big suitcase or two suitcases that are smaller you know you could take that and put it in part of it in a rifle case part of it in a carry-on you know, just to kind of help spread the load a little bit more efficiently. Okay. That makes sense. Um, as far as like you were saying about, you know, switching to the heart, to the soft case, when you go to fly on the bush plane, what, what do you do with a bow in that case? Well, so I do the same thing, but I actually put a bow sling on my bow. Um, I don't carry a soft sided bow case with me on bush planes or, um, on commercial travel. I actually, I have a double bow case. That one, I think it's an SKB fits up to a 40 inch long bow on the inside of it. Yep. And basically, uh, w whether it be rifle or bow case, you want a case that is larger than the minimum quantity that you're trying to put into it. So you can put extra stuff into it. And so like my bow case is a double bow case has a lot of extra space in it that I can put clothing, optics, extra arrows, broadhead case, archery repair kit, stuff like that. And then I'll put a bow sling on it to protect the cams and the string before I put that inside the case too. That way, if it ends up moving around a little bit, it won't touch the strings or anything like that. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what uh, I have the same SKB double case and and I I didn't do that with the bow sling when I flew to Alberta, but that makes a lot of sense. One from protecting it there and then once you you know fly into the the bush plane there cuz I think the one I have is a one of the the Sika bow slings that covers everything, covers your your bow sight, your strings, your um your quiver every which you'd have that detached, but it covers just about everything um there so yeah. That's that's the same one I use, and actually that's wonderful for bush plane flights. Um, and uh, as far as protecting the sight, I actually just pull the sight off my bow whenever I fly with it. That way uh, I try to take anything off the bow, like stabilizer, sight, anything that projects away from the bow that could be a potential pressure point if it gets stepped on or ran over. Mm, okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So... Uh, sorry. So we kind of covered the, you know, the flying with weapons portion there. What about the rest of your gear or actually let me, let me step back a second here. Um, 
when you're flying with the weapon stuff in your bow case, is there anything you need to worry about as far as like the weight of that luggage? Um, yes, to a certain point, and it depends on how much luggage you're bringing up with you. And so, like with Alaska Airlines, you can bring two checked bags up to 50 pounds each before being charged additional fees for oversized luggage. Now, oversized luggage would be anything per Alaska Airline regulations over 50 pounds up to 99 pounds. Once it gets over 99 pounds, I don't think they'll take it. Otherwise, it has to be air cargoed. Uh, there are certain exceptions as far as uh, size parameters. They have, I think, the max size can be up to 70 inches in any direction, uh, not to exceed 120 linear inches length, width, and height total for oversized luggage for like sporting equipment or something like that. But basically, you just don't want it to be over 100 pounds for oversized luggage. And then uh, it's financially beneficial if you can keep it to a minimum amount of bags just because additional checked luggage costs money. Okay. Um, is, do you, do you normally, is yours usually under 50 pounds or are you kind of in that oversized range? It kind of depends on the trip to be honest. So when I went to Alaska in 2018 for one of my moose hunts, I flew up there with five checked bags because I brought the entire camp and all the food for two guys and uh, as well as all my hunting gear and weapon and whatnot. So that was kind of an extreme case. Um, but then, say, my Idaho elk hunt this year, I traveled with a carry-on bag, just like a little Kafaro Antero backpack that had my laptop and my binoculars in it, some electronics, and then I had a main piece of luggage that had uh, like my pack in it, my sleep system and basic hunting gear and layers. And then my weapon case with my rifle and uh, ammo as well as a bunch of other clothing and stuff. So I was able to keep it to two on that one, but with my Alaska, not so much. And then of course, coming back, I had, I can't even remember how many bags coming back from Alaska with antlers and horns and everything. Oh, that had been fun. Good getting out of the airport. Yeah, it was a blast. I was actually, I think uh, I told you about how one of the reasons I'm such an advocate of Alaska Airlines is uh, on my moose hunt last year, they told us leaving the airport that our uh, moose antlers and skulls most likely would not come back on the same plane ride because there was so many so many of them leaving as checked luggage at the same time that they would most likely have to send them on the next flight, which is the case. And so when I landed in Chicago, I went up to the customer service rep over at Alaska Airlines when my moose my moose skull and antlers didn't come out. And uh, they said, yeah, we're, we're already tracking that it wasn't going to show up on the same flight. It'll be here on the next flight. We're just going to drive it to you, which was actually awesome because it was uh, classified as oversized luggage for $75. And so for $75, Alaska Airlines transported that moose skull from Bethel to my front door in Iowa City, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it actually, actually worked out pretty good that it didn't show up on the same flight. But, yeah, that would have been pretty cool to see people's uh, faces walking through the uh, Chicago airport with 69-and-a-half-inch Alaskan moose on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, a diverse place to, to put it lightly. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was funny. The driver that actually brought it to my house, he – he said, yeah, we got a lot of weird looks. People were like, what is that? Chandelier or something? Or <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
with um all right so going back to the bags and the gear um so mm-hmm. you're talking about you know the, how many check bags you take and that all depends um with um once you have more than say two checked bags what and you covered this a little bit but what what are the i guess costs associated with having more than than the allowable amount so it's a little different for every single airline and i use alaska airlines as an example because any additional bag beyond the first two checked bags is 75 dollars or if one of those first two is oversized it's over 75 dollars and um with Alaska Airlines, you can bring as many additional checked bags as you'd like, and worst case scenario, they show up on the next flight if they don't make it. Um, but like I said, I, I've traveled with up to seven checked bags on the way back from Alaska Airlines and up to five on the way out. Um, but that is one of those things that is airline specific. Okay. Um, yeah, I think for I think for this podcast and talking purposes, we'll. We'll focus on Alaskan Airlines and just know that if you're flying something else that you'd need to look into those regulations. But um, I, I think, I mean, it sounds like for me at least I'm, I'm going to plan on trying to use Alaskan Airlines for as much as I, as I possibly can. Did you, did you use those when you, them when you went to Idaho as well? Um, I didn't. I think I used uh, American, and that, that's where I ran into the lock issue that I mentioned before, which, uh, okay. you know, it, they're they're nice people. They they didn't do anything wrong. They were just mistaken on the regulation, and uh, it almost cost me a flight. But um, Alaskan Airlines, I've never had that issue with. Okay, because I did see Alaskan Airlines does fly in the lower forty-eight, you know, to some different they places. Do. But yep, it's just the major travel hubs. Like if I were to fly Alaska from Iowa to Idaho, I would have to fly from Chicago over to Boise. Ah, uh, I gotcha. That yep. makes sense. Um, mm. So um, going back to the, the bags and the gear, if you are, say, taking, you know, you're switching to a, a bush plane and you're going up, is there things you need to think of as far as what bags you're allowed to take on that, that bush plane? Um, are you taking all your luggage? Or are you storing it somewhere? What does that look like? Well, it's definitely good to think about because going on a bush plane, you can't bring your luggage with you unless it's soft-sided. And so, like with my trips to Alaska, what I'll oftentimes do, once again, depending on how much gear I bring, a lot of times I'll bring the bulk of my gear, like uh, clothing, waders, um, anything I'm not worried about being protected and something hard-sided on the way to Alaska, I'll just bring it in a soft-sided duffel. And I've used everything from like a standard issue military uh, green duffel to like, say, uh, Sitka waterproof duffels. Uh, I have one of their 120s that worked really good. And I put like my camp gear in there. And then I just check a soft-sided duffel as uh, checked luggage. And I'll even go as far as doing like a full layout of gear of what I'm taking into the field and then put it in the duffels that are then going to go on the uh, bush planes and uh, divvy that up weight-wise too. So that's a good tip because you can't bring hard-sided containers onto a bush plane. They need to be able to maneuver those around a little bit better. So what do you do with those hard-sided cases when you go to do that? Do you leave them um, where you're flying out of there? Yep. 
Absolutely. Your transport service will typically hold those for you at their hangar. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and, and like you were saying about, you know, when you pack, say your, your backpack, say you have your Kafaru or your Sika pack or whatever you might have inside, you know, one of those, you know, uh, checked bags, then you take it out and you could fill that I'm assuming, um, with your stuff and, and then, you know, an additional duffel or whatever. Yep. And that's what I do. I actually, uh, I've seen guys in the past, they'll like load their backpacking pack. Like, let's say it's like a five, 6,000 cubic inch pack and it's what you'll use to like haul meat or whatever. Um, I've seen guys actually fill those up with their gear and then just check that as a checked bag. But, um, I don't really like doing that because then your buckles are all hanging out. And um, I've been in a situation before where a waist belt buckle was pinched in a door or something in travel. And then I couldn't use my waist belt. And um, yeah, I mean, you can just imagine what that would feel like. Uh, It wasn't very much fun. So ever since that, what I actually do is I just flatten my pack, empty all of its contents, um, except for, of course, any accessories or pouches attached to it, but just flatten it. And then I actually take the flattened pack and just put that inside of a piece of luggage. Um, like I have uh, a few different pieces of luggage, whether it be that uh, really long Sitka luggage that's like 40-some inches long and 24 inches wide and like a foot and a half tall. You know that long rectangular one I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah, I was actually looking at that yep. one myself. Yeah, those are pretty slick. That'll actually fit a full bag in it, as well as like a sleep system and all your hunting gear. That one's pretty roomy. And then also just standard size, lu- size luggage up to a 26-inch frame will fit inside of those. And so what I'll do is basically all the components that are going in my pack in the field, I'll keep them loose inside of the piece of luggage, as well as my pack that's flattened. Okay. All right. That... To protect the pack. Yeah. That... Because the buckle. Yeah, that and that makes sense because I well I I when I went to Alaska not for a hunt but I went up there for the Heather's Choice Company retreat a couple of years ago. I took my Kafaru with the tactical frame it was like a twenty four inch frame and um and uh, the reckoning pack. I and I used that as a carry on actually. It was a little bit bigger than the allowable amount, but. I'm, I took the, the waist belt and wrapped it around the back of the pack <laughs> and made it look smaller than it was. And they didn't, you know, mm-hmm. measure it. And that worked for that. But if you're, I, I don't know if I'd do it again. It, it depends on what the, the, the reason for the hunt would be, you know, um, because I'm sure yeah, once it, you know, that wasn't a hunt. And if I was, or reason for the trip, because that wasn't a hunt. And if it came back all bloody, I don't know if I'd want to use that. Um, to be putting mm-hmm. some of my stuff in. Yeah, and that's that's the thing there too. Like there are certain situations where I would do that with, say, uh, a pack that's general. Generally speaking, if it has a 24 inch or smaller frame, it still exceeds the carry on dimension. But they'll take it because they kind of just eyeball it and they say okay. But like you said, if it's a hunt where I'm taking that pack to go pack an animal out, I don't want to bring a bloody stinky pack onto an airplane that's just going to draw too much attention to myself and they might actually not take it um, which would cause me even more problems and you know yeah you could always rinse it out beforehand but then you're worried about drying it and whatnot but say uh, say like a weekend uh, through hiking trip like say uh, 
uh, X amount gear death hike. I did that one a few years back. I just uh, brought my pack with me as checked luggage, and I had all my stuff for the weekend on that. But it just depends on what you're doing. You kind of you have to throw some common sense into the mix of it too. You, there's no uh, one way to do it. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You just gotta use the common sense at some point. <laughs> yeah. What? So, um, not to not to go too much off topic here, but I that, that's pretty cool that you did that XO death hike. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Was it? <laughs> You know, it really was, and actually, they give me crap about it because I only did it one year, and I did it the year that they call the easy year, the one where they hiked through uh, Hell's Canyon and the Seven Devils, and it was like 38 and a half or to 40 miles in less than 24 hours, and uh, afterwards, all the guys are sitting around joking like, oh, man, that was awesome, and I'm just like sitting there paralyzed, like... Yeah. <laughs> My feet are just hamburgered, and I'm just like, that was easy for you guys. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> but, hey, no, at, least you, at least you showed them hey, the guy from the Midwest from Iowa can can get it done, too. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was pretty cool. It was, uh, it was a real, that was a really fun experience. That was, uh, actually, I got invited on that by uh, my now boss, Russ Meyer. But then it was funny because Russ invited me on it and we were going to do the hike together. And then last minute, his wife bought him uh, uh, fight tickets in Vegas to Ronda Rousey or something like that. <laughs> and so he bailed on me. He was like, hey, Exo uh, Mountain Gear guys, here's my client, Kyle. Uh, have fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then here I am, like, hiking with all these high-profile people in the outdoor industry for the weekend. Just like, oh, hey, Ryan Lampers. Hi, uh, Steve Speck. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Just hanging out. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a good experience. But that's one of those That's one of those events that's invite-only. And so I was just able to get an invite through Russ. But Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. Oh. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's sweet. I had to had to ask you about when you said that I hadn't hadn't heard that in in our conversations in the past. So I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when it so going back to the the flying here. So all right, we talked about you know some of your your bags and and your gear, but um, when and you were talking about when you you know have one of those duffels, is it is it important to have one that's you know waterproof for water resistant taking into the field? preferably but you don't want one that is too heavy and i say that because there's this big wide range of them and there's the ones that are like a sitka bag that are a relatively thin water waterproof material but still terror resistant um kuyu makes one that's really good but i think uh some of the ones out there like say the yeti ones they're the most durable but they're also the most heavy. And when going into the field, you have a weight allowance on a bush plane. And so if your duffel bag weighs like five or six pounds, then it's like, uh, yeah, I, I'd rather take uh, a one and a half pound duffel bag that's waterproof to carry all my stuff in and an extra four pounds of food. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so you definitely have to take that into account too when you're bringing a uh, waterproof bag or waterproof duffel in the field is typically waterproof material is heavy and so definitely don't uh discount lighter weight options but you also need it to be durable enough to get dragged through a brush plane and not tear a hole in it yeah yeah that makes that makes sense 
Okay. Um, all right. To kind of switch gears a little bit here. Um, so what are some things that you need to know as far as what you can't take on a plane? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think uh, big ones would be your ammo. I've seen people take ammo onto a plane before. Um, That's a no-no. You can have that either in your weapons case or your regular checked luggage. Once again, check your airline regulations. I usually just put it in the same hard case as my rifle. Um, It needs to also be in its original container or an approved ammunition container. The easiest way is just to leave it in its own cardboard box because that's the most universally recognizable way to see that it's packaged properly. Um, You, let's see, what else can I, obviously you can't take like your, uh, your kill kit with your cleaning knives. Um, so leave your knives in your checked luggage, anything that can be perceived as a weapon. I actually prefer to bring uh, my binoculars and all my electronics in my carry-on bag just because uh, I don't want those kind of slung around inside my checked luggage. They're very expensive, as well as a lot of my electronics have lithium batteries in them. Because I use uh, Energizer lithium extreme batteries in all my electronics where I can just to get the best performance out of them in the field. And you can carry lithium batteries with you onto a plane. However, they have to be in your personal item or checked bag. They can't be in your checked luggage. That's a fire hazard, actually. Um, Let's see. What um I, I, I guess I guess uh, to narrow down the question a little bit for you, um, well actually you started saying something that that kind of shifted my gears a little bit here. Um, first let's let's talk about you know some, you talked about some of the things you're carrying in your carry on bag. Um, let's talk about the details of that, and then more or less what you're not allowed even putting in your checked bags, like something that, you know, you would typically take on a hunt, but you're not allowed to say you'd have to buy it up at the, wherever your destination is. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yep. Yep. And the biggest one would be fuel. So you can't bring in your checked bags. The biggest thing you can't bring would be like isobutane containers, uh, propane containers, liquid fuel, um, I have actually, I haven't gotten a straight answer on it, but I've gotten away with it, bringing uh, like fire starter, like uh, wet fire um, and um, matches, stuff like that for fire starting. I haven't had any issues bringing those in checked baggage. Um, Oh, yeah. I never thought about that. Like, I wonder if like my SBIT tablets would be okay or not. Mm-hmm. I have not had an issue bringing those as checked luggage. Okay. No issues at all. Gotcha. But the biggest one is fuel, which like with the unguided drop hunts that we've been talking about, your transporters will typically offer those to you in the town that you will fly out of. So like your unguided caribou hunt based out of Kotzebue, that one, they have propane and isobutane containers available for purchase there because they know you can't fly with those. Okay, so... Which, for, that's a good... That's a good... No, go ahead. I was going to say, so that's that's actually a really good question to ask your transporter on these hunts is to make sure that they are providing your fuel for you. Um, now, whether that be a part of, like, your drop hunt package or outfitted camp with food package, or if you're bringing your own gear like what you're doing, 
um, make sure that you can buy your fuel that you're going to need up there because you can't fly with it. Hmm. Okay. That's, um, yeah, that's definitely a question that, that I had and, excuse me, you know, with like my jet boil or any of those other, you know, ways to boil water and make food and everything there, that was the, the biggest concern of mine was to figure out, I don't want to get up there and be like, oh, I got all these dehydrated meals and I have no way to eat them. Guess I'm going to eat them dehydrated. (laughs) Yep. No, you gotta you gotta soak them in water for twenty four hours at that point before oh, they're that, ready to go. That would be miserable. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> that's funny. Uh, but okay, well that that makes sense. And when it comes to your you know your carry on bag, and I'm asking these questions one because I think it'll help people out, but also because I geek out on just kind of gear and how people organize stuff. So and I I know you do too. Um, so like oh, absolutely. With your Kafaru Antero, so that you're taking that on the plane with you as, you know, as your uh, carry-on bag, uh, what you said you're putting, you know, you say your binoculars, any electronics, what what else are you keeping in that? Yeah, for sure. So with all of my hunts, I will put in there um, the most expensive or fragile items as well as electronics. Um good example of like an expensive item would be a pair of binoculars, uh, electronics. I have an external battery, charging cords, uh, GPS, in reach, those kind of things. But then also something to put in your carry-on luggage as well is uh, your paperwork. And uh, on almost all of these hunts, you're going to be carrying with you some sort of paperwork. Now, whether that be your uh, harvest registration report, um, non-resident hunting license, locking tags, like what you'll need for caribou and wolf. Um, But then also, it's uh, Alaska regulation that you have a uh, transporter client agreement per Alaska state regulations. And what that is, is that's your agreement between your transporter that's flying you into the field. Um, You'll need to carry that with you in travels and in the field. So I always have that with me. And what I do there is I I call it an I love me packet. I put together a packet of everything that I need while in the field, as well as for the duration of the hunt in like a packet. And then uh, I usually make a couple copies of that. One stays home with a loved one as like a backup. And then one goes with me for the duration of the entire trip with all the pertinent information I need. Okay. And with, um, and I know there's like, so I, I haven't, you know, flown a ton, but I've been flying more in the last few years. And, you know, a lot of airlines allow for one carry on and one personal item. Um, do you take advantage of that or is what, where does your, your Kafaro and Tarot fall into that? I usually only bring the personal item and I've been close to bringing a checked bag several times, or sorry, uh, or carry on, which would be like a mini checked bag. I've been close to bringing that, but I just don't like dragging it through the airports. So I just try to keep it to one personal item, which is just my little backpack I throw on my back and then uh, a few checked bags I need. Okay. All right. That makes, that makes sense. Um, anything in that, in that, you know, uh, your personal bag there that in case your check luggage doesn't get there on time, anything as far as clothing or anything like that? Um, I was actually just about to bring that up. One of the things that I have seen people do 
is uh, say for example they're planning for worst case scenario to where like let's say their weapon and the bulk of their hunting gear doesn't show up on a hunt well on a unguided drop hunt where they're already providing you your camp and food per se you could in theory borrow a rifle somewhere locally and as long as you have enough clothes on your back go into the field for a couple days and have them airdrop your stuff in if it didn't show up on time i've heard of people planning for that by bringing like a a a personal uh what do they call it carry-on bag and uh, have enough clothes to go into the field as well as like maybe part of your sleep system or something to where you could survive initially going into the field without everything but uh how i look at that is it's kind of all or nothing for me (laughs) just because i'd rather i'd rather lose a day on a hunt, let's say if my gear showed up a day late for some reason, then go into the field unprepared and have it negatively affect my experience. Yep. And also for that reason, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, should I ship my gear up beforehand? Because a lot of guys will do that too. And I actually, I actually prefer not to because in my mind, all right, so let's say I'm flying with my hunting gear, as well as my weapon, um, even if I fly all of my, or mail all of my gear up ahead of time, and that costs two $300 and has to be done months in advance, even if I do that, my weapon doesn't show up on the same flight, then it's, I'm still grounded till the next day. And it just doesn't seem to make that much of a difference to me because if, if my weapon didn't show up, then most likely my hunting gear wouldn't show up as well on the same flight. So I just look at it as kind of like an all or nothing thing. Yeah. Nope. I, I, I'm following you there. And I mean, too, I mean, when you're shipping your gear somewhere, that just adds another aspect to it where you're like, all right, you know, how do I know where it's at? Everything's good. Things haven't been gone through. Just there's always those, at least in my mind, I think about those things. Yeah, definitely. That's just, it seems like an unnecessary expense. And then also you have to fly home with it anyways. So you can ship it up, but you're still flying home with it. So what's the difference? Yeah. Yep. That uh, makes sense. Um, All right. So when, all right, now you go up, you go on your hunt, you have the dream hunt of your life, whether that's, you know, in, you know, Idaho or that's in Alaska and, but Again, we'll 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 put it towards Alaska just for talking sense here, but I'm sure some of these things can apply across the board. What what's it like to bring your meat back? You know, that is actually a very simple process and you actually for the most part you're just boning it out while you're up there and packaging it in either like a Ziploc freezer bag or uh, some sort of like larger contractor type bag and putting it in these boxes that they just call them fish boxes up there, but it's a heavy duty cardboard box that has a a thick mill trash bag type liner. And um, then you just put that all together and then freeze it before you got to fly out. And then you're actually just flying home with a box full of meat And then same thing, like with your antlers, you can actually fly your antlers with skull all intact. You don't have to split the skull to travel with it as checked luggage, as long as it does not exceed the uh, maximum dimension of 70 inches wide, 40 inches long, and 
something something tall not to exceed 120 inches linear dimension total so like say for example my my moose that i got last year at 69 and a half wide uh bull moose i was able to travel with that as checked luggage as well as my moose before that huh that's 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 so amazing because i i always heard that you had to you know something with like the size of a moose that you'd have to have it shipped back or get put on one of those transporters or something along those lines yeah you know if you were to shoot a moose so big that it needed to be air cargoed for an additional fee, I would very much welcome that situation. And so same deal with uh, caribou. <laughs> there is a possibility that you'd shoot a caribou so big that it would have to be air cargoed or some sort of alternate method of transportation down or have it expedited to you through like, say like wildlife gallery or one of the local taxidermists. But even then, like I said, that's, that's a very good problem to have. <laughs> yeah. at, at that point, I'd figure out how to make the extra money if that became a problem. <laughs> yeah. And even even then, you're not looking at that much of an additional expense. It's, you know, really uh, that kind of stuff can get super expensive if you were to have taxidermy work done up in Alaska and then have it cargo down to you. Like, say, for example, if you got a, a moose shoulder mounted down here in the lower 48, you're looking, depending on where you take it to, you're typically going to be under like 2000 1800 bucks if you have it done up there shoulder mounts are going to start at that plus thousand to fifteen hundred for eighteen feet to get it back so you could be three grand into a shoulder mount up there on something as large as a moose Jeez. before it even gets to your front door whereas you can uh, you can also kind of have an in-between thing done it's called like a dip and pack where they would boil your skull for you and uh, tan your hide and have it shipped down to the lower 48 and that's typically only a few hundred dollars but still, it's an additional expense that you can avoid if you just bring it back as checked luggage for seventy-five bucks. Yeah, that's yeah. You can't beat that. And you said with Alaskan Airlines, like that's you basically can have unlimited checked bags, so you can bring all your meat back without any issue. Yep, correct. And sometimes you'll run into situations where if they have a lot of hunters leaving one spot at one time, like with my moose hunt, they'll ask you, okay, if all of your bags cannot fly with you on the same flight, which bags do you want to designate as a priority? And so typically what you'll do, like say in your case, um, you go up there, you guys got your caribou all packed up. Let's say both of you guys each have two boxes of meat each your checked luggage and then your uh, uh, caribou skull and antlers attached, what you would do is just say, okay, my primary bags are going to be these two meat boxes. Everything else flies on standby in the event there's not room on the plane. So that way your meat or anything expendable would get there first and get most priority. Um, so that's really no big deal. And then in that case, Alaska Airlines will deliver it to your front door, like I said. Yeah, and and like you, um, I, I live almost three hours away from the airport. So that, that would be a fun drive for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me tell you, it's a hell of a thing to see a Dodge minivan pull up to the front of your house with a giant <laughs> set of antlers sticking out of the back of it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, yeah. So what if, what if someone was, okay, say they weren't going to Alaska and you were bringing back an elk or a mule deer, are there any different precautions you got to take like with the antlers to bring them back? Yes. And funny enough, it's actually more simple to get a animal back from Alaska as far as uh, getting antlers shipped back to you. 
using Alaska Airlines than it is domestically in the lower 48. Um, because, uh, say, with most standard airlines like uh, United or American or any of those, you wouldn't be able to bring something as large as like uh, an elk skull with antlers attached back as checked luggage. You would have to either split the skull or uh, if it was small enough, like say a, a mule deer rack, you could probably fit that in a large enough box to where they would just take it as checked luggage. But I've heard of guys uh, like sawing off the elk antlers and having them reattached once they get back if they want to fly with them. Oh. Otherwise, you're looking, you're looking at, yeah, I wouldn't do it either. But <laughs> otherwise, you're looking at uh, just take it to a local taxidermist and have them uh, like boil it and ship it to you. But then you're looking at an additional like uh, cargo fee or uh, uh, some sort of a freighting fee. And that's typically a few hundred dollars. Or you can just have a taxidermy work done there, and then they can box up and ship your mount to you. But then you're talking an expensive fee there too. So it's actually ends up being a little more expensive to move an elk around the lower 48 than it would be like a moose from Alaska down to the lower 48. Surprisingly, but that's all just centered around the airlines. But like you had mentioned earlier, you can fly Alaska Airlines in the lower 48, but you just have to do it out of a main travel hub. That's amazing. That's a, mm-hmm. um, I, yeah. I know when, I know when my dad came back from New Mexico and he brought a mule deer, uh, buck back and it was a big rack, but he, uh, instead of like putting into a box or anything, they just took, uh, I think it was bubble wrap or something around the points and around the tips of the antlers and then taped it all on any of the, the sharp edges. And then they did the same thing around the skull itself. And they allowed to, I don't remember what airline, but that's the way they had to bring it back. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's kind of the same deal coming back from Alaska with like a moose or caribou skull. Um, you'll actually, you'll wrap the, any sort of raw flesh to be the skull after, you know, you've taken the lower jaw and the other stuff off, off of it. And then, uh, you have to pad and cover all of the points. So cool. So, Kyle, is there anything else that you can think of as far as flying um, to a destination to hunt that, you know, or things that people should think of or, um, yeah, any any other tips or tricks about it? Um, you know, one of the things I was going to bring up about bringing meat back, kind of a, a little travel hack, like I was saying earlier, how you want to try to be as efficient as possible, um, you know, with trying to combine multi-use items and so on and so forth with packing. One of the things that you can do that'll make it a little bit easier and condense your luggage and help you bring meat back too is you can bring, like say in your case, you're bringing your food up there as a part of your unguided caribou hunt. Um, If you put all of your food and everything else that will be expended during the trip in a hard-sided cooler on your way up, that can be a piece of checked luggage that you can also bring meat back in because like you could do uh, like all your freeze-dried stuff, any real food, as well as like if you wanted to bring some like quart and gallon size uh, freezer Ziploc bags to package your meat for when you bone it out up there, put all that stuff that you're going to expend during your trip inside that cooler. You'll take that up there as checked luggage 
and then you're going to empty it during the hunt, whether that be for packaging your meat or uh, consuming your freeze-dried meals. And then you're going to have an empty cooler to bring meat back in. So that's kind of a multi-use item there, a little travel hack for people. Um, so that's something to think of too. But um, hmm. as far as anything else that I can think of or travel tips, um, you know, there's a lot of steps and little things that go into it and you can dive as deep into it as you really want to. Um, and it's all overwhelming. But one of the things that you can do is just literally just look at everything from a door to door perspective and all the different stages of the adventure that you're going to go on. And, you know, you start writing it all out and it gets pretty simple. And before you know it, you have a plan formulated that's really quite simple to follow and just makes it all doable because it is just a lot of information to try to think about all at once. And that's part of the fun of it too. Yeah. I, I know like when we did this, uh, well, actually, what you and I are looking at right now, you know, I use Google Documents, Google Docs a lot. And if you're going on a trip with buddies and stuff, you can share that that document with them. They everyone can go and edit it, and that's that was really fun in our Idaho trip last year. It wasn't a fly hunt, but just as far as like the preparation goes, we you know started out with like basically a, a section called Brain Dump, and just anything you could think of related to the trip, you just wrote it there in bullet points. <laughs> And then, you know, yeah. a couple pages down, then you start, you know, organizing a little bit. All right, this is down to the, this is travel information, this is gear. And then you kind of refine it as you go down to something that's a workable document that, you know, is organized and, you know, go there. But that, that has really been a big help for me personally to do that. And the more organized you are, you know how it is. It's, it's, it makes the, the whole adventure and the whole trip go smoother that um when you when you know where everything's at you're organized you understand the regulations and you're good to go yeah definitely and that's I and mean, honestly that's very similar to like what i've done in the past too where you just kind of brain dump something out like all my gear lists for all my trips they start as a rough draft for sure <laughs> yeah. they don't start out all pretty they start out as general categories and uh, they start very broad and then narrow down um, same deal with like planning and lining out all the logistics from the front to the back end of the trip it always starts with a rough draft and you know, it's good just to see everything out in front of you, almost spreadsheet format of just what's on the table. How can I narrow this down and make this a lot simpler? So Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think uh, this year, you know, you and I are both doing the, the same uh, caribou hunt. So I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot more on the gear side of things and the whole planning phase. And I'm, I'm pumped to, to get to do that. Yeah, definitely. I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's going to be a fun hunt. Cool, man. Well, Kyle, where can people find uh, some more information on you and if they want to get a hold of you to plan a hunt uh, for themselves? You know, what where can people find that information? Well, um, you can check out Outdoors International online, outdoorsinternational.com. Uh, we have a lot of resources on there um, as far as different types of hunts that you can look at. Um, and then if you guys want to get a hold of me personally, you can send me an email over at khanson at outdoors-international.com or you can call me directly at 
936-6917. If I don't answer, please leave a voicemail. Oftentimes I have a high call volume, but I'll always call people back. So. Awesome. And uh, I'll put the, I'll put that contact information in the show notes so people can find that and, you know, be able to give you a call at all hours of the night. And (laughs) 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 no, that's, that's awesome, man. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to me and, and even more appreciate your help with, you know, planning this dream hunt of mine. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Cool. All right, Kyle. Well, you have a a good night and we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good, bud. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe and we'll catch you next time.